Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, podcast listeners, to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesslering. And on today's podcast, we have episode 200. Can you believe we've done that many episodes? Well, on today's show, Mike and I chat about a number of topical events in the capital markets, including CPI hitting 7.5%. This represents a 40-year high for inflation. How bad will things get out there? Growth stocks have been absolutely taken to the woodshed. Is Peloton and others heading to zero? There was a weirdo couple, husband and wife, arrested trying to launder 4.5 billion of bitcoins from the 2016 Bitfinex hack. Are there any market implications? Lastly, we're going to chat about the Ape DAO liquidation. So please enjoy our episode 200. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to State of the Markets 5, the bursting of the growth stock bubble. What's next? Got myself, Julian Klamachko, Chief Investment Officer and CEO at Accelerate, and we have my co-host, Mike Kesslering, both of the Absolute Return podcast. Of course, this will be a live episode, so thank you, everyone, for participating Wow, what a crazy market we're in these days. We have a number of topics that we want to chat about on this live podcast, this Twitter spaces. First, what I believe is absolute number one top of mind for investors. And if this isn't top of mind, it should be. This is CPI at 7.5%. I mean, inflation is the number one thing to think about in the current market environment. With that being said, we're going to talk about what you can do about it, how bad it's going to get, you know, the fact that it's clearly not transitory. So you can't listen to the Federal Reserve, can't listen to the central bankers. We're going to give you what you need to know what to do in this market environment in which there's a significant persistent inflationary environment. Next, and highly related, highly correlated, is growth stocks taken to the woodshed. It's Peloton heading to zero. I say that in jest, but nonetheless, that stock's getting crushed down 77% year over year. Other growth stocks getting crushed. They are coming out of the biggest equity bubble we've had in the history, at least in the history of US markets. It, of course, does not come even close to what we saw in Japan in the 1980s, but that is something that we're going to discuss as well, provide you a game plan with respect on what to do with overvalued growth stocks and where to be allocating capital in the current market environment. Also want to touch on that massive uh, $4.5 billion Bitcoin recovery from the Bitfinex hack. What a funny and crazy story behind the couple, the wife of which is some sort of uh, YouTube rapper. (laughs) wanted to touch on that story and talk about Bitcoin and blockchain in general why it's you know the hardest thing to launder money through. Then lastly, some NFT stuff, the ApeDAO liquidation, which is an interesting application of TradFi activist investing techniques in the DeFi space. So Mike, how are you doing today? Are you ready to get into it? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's exciting to be back uh, doing our, our, uh, our old style of podcast um and especially on twitter spaces it's uh it's it's fun fun to do okay let's talk about this inflation news which is top of mind for every single investor in the world and if it's not it now is so let's summarize what happened consumer price index for january it's a cpi this is kind of the broad measure of inflation some people complain that it's not necessarily an accurate portrayal of a true basket of consumer goods. And the most off-cited criticism is that it's far too low. So take it as at a minimum that inflation was up 7.5% on an annual basis. Uh, many people estimate it's up double digits, specifically if you're trying to buy a house or a car or fill it with gasoline. Certainly that is um, 
up more than 7.5%. Estimates were at 7.2%, so certainly a significant upside surprise. Now, there's this other measure of inflation, core CPI, that was up 6%. That eliminates you know, some energy and grocery costs. That was estimated to come in at 5.9%, so coming in above estimates on that one. So what you need to know is these are the fastest inflation levels, fastest CPI, both headline and core, in 40 years. Like it's just absolutely incredible the amount of inflation that we have. Market effect what happened? Well, number one, of course, bonds got smoked. Ten-year yields surged about above two percent for the first time since July 2019. If you guys caught my 2022 outlook at year end, I did call for non-persistent inflation. I did call for increasingly high and persistent inflation numbers. And I did forecast that the 10-year may top 3% this year. I'm sticking with that forecast. I think bonds will continue to get absolutely wrecked here. I don't see why anyone would own a bond with a real return of nearly 6%. But that's just me. I don't know. I mean, people do dumb things all the time. So what the central bankers wanted you to think is that inflation was transitory. Clearly, it's not. Clearly, they're wrong, and they don't have a ton of credibility. What I find kind of shocking, disappointing, because I do allocate to this, uh, this is part of my asset allocation, that's gold. You know, if you told me, well, inflation is going to be the highest in 40 years, uh, monetary policy was out of control, our dollars are depreciating at the fastest rate since 1982, I think, well, at least my gold is doing well. But unfortunately, that's not the case on the news of the numbers. It fell in the short term down 0.4%. But more importantly, it's flat year to date. Now, I wanted to touch on you know, why you want to hold gold and Bitcoin as store of value. Of course, Bitcoin, well-recognized, and certainly it is, from my perspective, as digital gold and a store of value asset. And many people say, oh, it's not a good inflation hedge because it's not negatively, exactly 100% negatively correlated to the month-over-month changes in CPI. I'm like, well, who cares? I'm not trying to get negative, negatively correlated to the month-over-month changes in CPI. I'm trying to maintain purchasing power over the long term, 5, 10, 20 years. There's a saying over the past hundreds or perhaps, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 years that one ounce of gold should buy a nice man's suit. I'm sure it's equivalent for a woman's suit as well. And that saying, I think, came like over 1,000 years ago. And that still rings true today. So that how, uh, how gold has maintained its purchasing power over the extremely long term. We're talking about multiple, multiple generations, you know, hundreds of generations. Um, that's something to keep in mind. Certainly, Bitcoin only been around for you know, roughly a dozen years. So its track record is significantly lower. However, you know, it is a rare asset that's limited in supply that I believe will protect investors. And people say, oh, you know, Bitcoin, it didn't go up that day, so it's not an inflation edge. Well, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking, remember, to maintain our purchasing power over long periods of time. And if you look at Bitcoin over you know, relatively long periods of time, i.e. just over you know, 12 plus months, uh, its returns have been exceptional. Has it maintained purchasing power? Yes, plus about like, you know, 10,000 basis points per annum on top of that. So that's one thing to note. Uh, Another really interesting commodity in the current market environment, in an environment of spiraling out of control inflation is WTI, oil, approaching 100 bucks a barrel. I'm sure many people didn't think we'd see that again after we saw it not too long ago reach negative $37 in terms of the futures. But that means in terms of equities, obviously with skyrocketing inflation, multiples are going to come down, interest rates are going up. So you don't want to be in these high growth tech stocks, which we're going to touch on next. The sectors that are doing well, and you can see it in the markets just today. I mean, the S&P 500 was down 2.1%. The TSX composite was actually up 
14 basis points. Why? Well, because they have energy and financials. What does well in this market environment? As I talked about, as I spoke about on the 2022 forecast a months ago, what's going to do well in this environment? Energy, financials, and industrials. That has not changed. Those who listened have been rewarded and they will continue to in the future. So what's the expectations for 2022 with respect to interest rates? Well, now the Fed is absolutely losing their mind, I'm sure, at out-of-control inflation rates. What they're scared of is you know, absolutely losing all control of inflation and seeing it spiral into the double digits. That would be an absolute disaster scenario. They cannot have. So what's on the table? Rapid rate hikes. Markets now expecting at least seven rate hikes this year. Uh, that compares to just three a number of weeks ago on the estimate, right? So rates are going to go up significantly this year. What is bad about that? I mean, you've seen it. Stocks are down. Bonds are down. Traditional 60-40 is getting absolutely wrecked. The 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio got smoked in January, and it will continue to do poorly as inflation spirals out of control and rates go up. What you need to know, well, inflation is not transitory. As we told you nearly a year ago, put out a post last spring on the inflation, inflationary environment and the forecast. Nearly a year ago, we said that central bankers are wrong. It's not going to be transitory. Of course, they were wrong. We are proven correct because this inflation, surprise, surprise, is not supply side related. This inflation is due to printing north of $10 trillion of dollars. What happens when you print over $10 trillion of dollars and put it out there? Well, it reducing, reduces the purchasing power that paper money. So this is not at all surprising. We could see it coming from a mile away. And this post I put out one year ago was called the, you know, the antidote to inflation is to hold the four horsemen of the inflation apocalypse. So that's diversifying our portfolio beyond just stocks and bonds to hold alternative assets such as gold, such as Bitcoin. We have those real stores of value that are uncorrelated in nature and can help protect your purchasing power in an environment in which your dollars are rapidly depreciating. The other two, real estate and infrastructure, these are called real assets, and they tend to do well in a rising rate environment because they have cash flows related to them that can adjust to higher levels of inflation. So, Mike, those are my thoughts on this environment in which inflation is spiraling out of control. Clearly, central bankers have or are losing control. What are your thoughts on what's happening in the market here? Yeah, no, quite a quite a few thoughts and and. I think you laid it out correctly right now in terms of that it's just spiraling right now. And the first thing that comes to mind, um, you mentioned the word a couple of times, but it's transitory. And and what 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 is transitory? And especially by the definition of central bankers, really the way that I take it every single time I see that word, I just assume it's what they use as a description for different elements of CPI that they that they want to explain away and increases basically that they they don't like so things that are consumables that that pretty much everyone is buying that they by their definition is is not a staple and and you know it's it's things that people are buying every day that are going up and really just our dollars, the purchasing power has just been eroding. And and this isn't anything new. You mentioned that we've been talking about it a year, a, a, as long as a year back. I actually was looking back at some of our old podcast notes. And, you know, it, we've been talking about this for a couple of years where the definitions always seem to change and it would always be around targeting um, in that 2% range. Well, now the the numbers have just gone so crazy that it's becoming a lot more difficult to explain away. And wanted to also just mention a little bit um, briefly on the from the Canadian perspective as well, um, as we are based in Canada and you know very tied to the U.S. market. But 
inflation here as well going crazy um, this quarter. Um, I believe the Bank of Canada is expecting it to be five five point one percent, which you know is is <laughs> pretty high numbers um, and and approaching that of the U.S. With what we're also seeing is that the expectations are for the Bank of Canada to raise rates substantially before year end. But will we see that? They they had an opportunity to do so at their last announcement and did not take that opportunity, which was um, fairly frustrating from a, a, a Canadian's perspective. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. I just wanted to touch on the, the notion that you mentioned that the market was, I believe, assigning a two-thirds probability that the Bank of Canada would hike at their meeting a couple of weeks ago, and the governor, governor Tiff Macklin, actually did not. And this is probably one of the biggest policy errors I've seen in recent history from a central banker, because it's my thesis, and this has been proven out time and time again, no matter what they say, their decisions are based off market expectations. They basically do, they get pushed around by the market, they look at what futures are pricing in, and that's what they do. So what you had was... If the market's not pricing in rate hikes and they do one, I mean, that's just absolutely disastrous and things crash. So it's extremely important that the bankers wait until they have, quote unquote, permission from the market, i.e., is the market expecting this rate hike? And, the and that's what we talk about with credibility in. as well, right, Julian? Yeah, that's exactly. part of being a credible central banker. Yeah. And in this specific scenario, the market was, okay, we're giving you permission. We're pricing in a two-third chance of a rate hike. So go on and do it. And he did not. I think that was a major policy error. And I mean, Canadian real estate up 20% year over year, approximately. So, you know, you see that inflation playing out there. Mike, back to you. Well, yeah. And just the, you've always seen conspiracy theories on Bank of Canada decisions being really driven by strictly real estate, like the Canadian housing and condo market. And the the more you see some of these these moves, they're maybe not that maybe not really a conspiracy theory. Um, when when you look at that, like, do you think it's really just caution around the housing market and condo market for for them not raising in that last in the last announcement? Well, you got to realize that central bankers are humans too. As hard as that is to believe, but no one wants a recession on their hands. Right. And so if a central banker um, hikes too aggressively, the how you cool down inflation is you, you know, withdraw monetary stimulus and with tightening financial conditions, generally a recession is created. So obviously you feel bad if people are losing their jobs, businesses are shutting down, the economies shrinking. You know, no one wants to have that on their hands. So I think there's that human element of they're very, very quick to ease and they're extremely cautious to hike. And you saw it with, um, you know, when we entered COVID, I mean, central bankers, basically globally, at least Western central banks, very quickly chopped interest rates to zero or near zero. And they do, you know, 50 basis point plus cuts. You never see that on the hiking side. They never they always are like slow and methodical in terms of the rate hikes, but on the rate cuts, it seems to always be the elevator down and the escalator up. Yeah, I was just going to say that exactly is <laughs> that that is how it seems to go. And you know, I, I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot lately on what would restore trust in the Fed and in the bank, to a lesser extent, the Bank of Canada, but really the, the Fed is what's what's more important for global markets. You know, when, when you look at the inflation numbers that we have in the 80s, you know, that became, you know, almost hyperinflation and it was was a crazy time in markets. Do Do you need some sort of strong arm character to come into that role in the Fed? Kind of like a, a Paul Volcker, is that what's required to to regain trust? That's just kind of an open question. What do, what do you think? Yeah, it's a good point. And so the Fed's mandate 
officially and unofficially. So the two uh, official mandates are stable pricing, i.e. inflation approximately, or um, what they refer to as inflation, a PCE, uh, approximately 2%, and then maximum employment. But I say their unofficial mandate is S&P 500 annual return targeting of roughly 10% positive every year because they are extremely sensitive to movements in the equity markets, right? That drives a lot of their decision-making. However, they have a bit of a quagmire on their hands because number one, S&P 500 targeting, asset price targeting, which I believe they do unofficially, is obviously extremely beneficial for wealthy people, right? And that's who uh, they have been catering to for the past at least dozen years. On the flip side, inflation is regressive. It's beneficial for the wealthy, for the most part, because they have assets. However, it's extremely awful. Like it's, it's really bad for poor people, right? Because they don't have the assets to capitalize on the increasing inflation. So is the Fed going to continue to cater to investors and wealthy people? Or are they finally going to take into account the poor and middle class who you know, are, are having trouble affording groceries? They're having trouble affording rent. And they can't pay their expenses because their expenses are rising, in some cases, at a double-digit clip. And, you know, at some point, that gets back to the president of the United States, right? He wants to get reelected or the party wants to get reelected. And therefore, their policies will change to, at some point, stop favoring wealthy investors and start, you know, making decisions in favor of the poor and the middle class, which is a large contingent of the population. That being said, I believe that is the type of dynamic and probably the only dynamic in which you'll see the Fed allow markets to trade down because they will start basically have a mandate from their bosses to start working not for the wealthy people anymore. Uh, not for the investors, but kind of for the middle class, which is something that very may well happen. I think I think that's what we're heading towards here. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate. Do you want to diversify your investment portfolio while benefiting the planet? The Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF, symbol ABTC on the Toronto Stock Exchange, provides investors with exposure to Bitcoin while protecting the environment. Accelerate implements a global tree planting campaign to sequester carbon emissions and help fight climate change. Up to 10% of ABTC's 69 basis point management fee will be allocated to Accelerate's annual tree planting campaign. For each $1,000 invested in ABTC, an estimated one net ton of carbon dioxide is expected to be sequestered each year. Buy Bitcoin, save the planet. Find out more at investabtc.com. All right. I think that wraps it up on the inflation chat. But highly related to that is one effect of an inflationary environment, rising interest rates, rising real rates, at least from deeply, deeply negative levels, is how is that going to affect equities? As you all know, we're coming out of the greatest uh, equity bubble in the history of U.S. markets which goes back over 100 years. Uh, This is a greater bubble than even uh, 1999-2000 in terms of valuations of tech stocks specifically. The Schiller PE uh, rose above 40. That was basically the level it was at in late 1999. And we hit highest record levels of all time for a number of valuation measures for U.S. equities, whether it be Tobin's Q, EV to sales, EV to EBITDA, Etc. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, highest valuations on record. So we have high inflation, rising rates, rising real rates. What does that mean? Well, valuations are going to come down. With valuations coming down, the ones at the top of the heap are going to get smoked the worst. And that is exactly what's happened over the past number of months and you know past kind of three to twelve months. Growth stocks have been absolutely taken to the woodshed. Stocks like Peloton, which many suspect just being a fad, someone strapped an iPad to an exercise bike, suddenly it's worth tens of billions of dollars. But what seems to be happening at Peloton, it, you can kind of, you know, it's um, 
representative of the whole growth stock bubble. You know, it was one of these uh, work from home type trend plays, went to absolutely crazy bubble levels and uh, throughout the COVID pandemic. And then they just, you know, they they basically had all this demand push forward and then had an air pocket, right? And many people are, are, are like, wow, no price is too high to pay for the stock when they're growing like crazy. And now they're like, no price is too low. So they're going through this tough transition from growth investors to value investors. And there's a massive differential, this massive gap between where one finds it attractive and the other. And with that difficult transition, a lot of uh, operational problems, the CEO is out. They're having massive job cuts of which they cut thousands of jobs and then gave them, I believe, complimentary Peloton subscriptions, which is probably the last thing that you'd ever want in the world. They did have a rumored sale. Of course, no bid, no bidders. Surprise, surprise. That happens every single time. They always rumor, be rumored for a sale to try to um, stop the bleeding in the stock, but it never materializes. But fact of the matter is it's still a very expensive fad stock. It is down 77% year over year, but it went down from eight times sales to, to 2.8 times sales. Now, you know, fad fitness concepts generally trade very, very low. Look at any other gem stock. They don't deserve premium valuations. So the CEO is out, new CEO in. He used to be CFO of Spotify and Netflix, but you know, he's basically coming from two other sort of bubble stocks. I don't know how helpful that is. Uh, some other companies, other stocks taking it on the chin, Facebook, or should I say Meta, down 35% year-to-date. An absolute tech wreck. That was trading at four times sales. Uh, It's down from 7.5 times. So these valuation resets certainly are painful, especially coming from highest levels in the history of U.S. markets. And even the S&P 500... It's down to seven or 2.5 times sales, down from 2.9 times. But remember that 2.9 times is the highest of all time. I wanted to wrap up that discussion with a quote, rewinding back 22 years to one of the CEOs that was focused in the tech bubble. That's Scott McNeely, who was the CEO of Sun Sun Microsystems, one of the darlings of the bubble back in 1999, 2000, or even the late 1990s. At the peak, his stock valuation hit 10 times sales. Then he gave this quote a couple years after that. He said, at 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64 per share? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? And I agree with his sentiment. Exactly. These valuations were absolutely out of control. And remember, if you're investing in equities, the key determination of success is not what you own, but how much you pay, i.e. valuation drives returns. Mike, what are your thoughts on this tech wreck that is currently playing out? Are, are we in uh, the first inning? Yeah, it's it's certainly interesting. I mean, it went to to a couple of things that you mentioned. First of all, with Peloton, they're specifically focusing on Peloton for right now. Like their new management team, uh, you know, their experiences in the growth space and and growing a brand and and building up users. Right now, it seems like what what the company needs is more of an operator with turnaround experience and, and more of a cost consolidator. Um, so I, I just don't know about the, the decision to hire the new management team. Um, but then I, I just wanted to go back to, we, we covered Peloton at during the time of their IPO. And I remember at that time when we were speaking about this, and this is just to put my hand up, 
uh, is I was more positive on them at that time. And, and although I wasn't bullish, I was definitely a lot more positive on them than you were. And really, where, where it's come since then is full circle. Um, it's, it's trading right now around the same price as the time when we were t- speaking about Peloton uh, a few years ago. Was but that really 2019? Where- yeah, yeah. And so really where my positivity was was around their engaged audience um, and high gross margins, viewed them as a luxury brand. And so when 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 you were mentioning some of the comps in the fitness space, the lens I was looking at them through is more on the luxury brand side because I mean, yeah, like they're strapping a an, an iPad to an exercise bike. So it really, if you're going to be willing to pay more than what those base components are, you know, it, it has, there's no other explanation that it has to be a luxury brand. And, and it's just so interesting to see it just come, it, it bubbled up way further than I thought it could. I thought it was a rich IPO price, but I wasn't completely pessimistic on it, but now it's just come full circle. And, and, and luxury brands are really interesting in the sense of there's that, that feedback loop where, especially when you have this hardware component that once your brand value starts deteriorating, people start questioning, like, why would they pay a premium price for a Peloton rather than just an off-brand bike? I Anecdotally, I have plenty of friends that just buy a regular exercise bike and then use the Peloton app. You know, there's all of a sudden those questions start popping up. And then on the for a luxury brand, the worst thing you can have is negative negative sentiment in pop culture and that's what happened when uh i believe it was sex in the city one of the uh one of the characters was killed off on a peloton and so that's that's not really good for for growing a brand uh but yeah the the situation's been really interesting i don't think they're going to zero um by any means but you know getting to the range where it's becoming more properly valued because it, it did just get absolutely insane. And, and we were seeing this in growth stocks in general. Um, you mentioned another company that you mentioned, Netflix. They've been absolutely hammered lately. A little bit of a rebound now, but you know, we're both you and I, Julian, I don't think I would describe us as the type of investors that are overly keen on catching a falling knife that's just really outside of our wheelhouse. Now, someone like Bill Ackman, he he recently announced his investment in Netflix. That's exactly up up his his alley, and it's very splashy. It's it's something that uh, makes sense for a Bill Ackman name. But you know these these growth stocks have just been absolutely getting killed, and for for investors that have long been getting killed on the other side for being a value investor, it, it is nice to see value winning for once. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Bill Ackman and catching falling knives reminds me of, and first off, I want to say that I think he's way too early. Typically, when these growth stocks implode, you have far more than a 30% drawdown. Typically, the drawdowns go 80 to 90%. And Netflix has been through that before. Think about if we re- rewind 10, 11 years back when Carl Icahn took a stake in the single digits. Netflix traded in the single digits back then, and I believe was down about 80%. And that's when Icahn got in and obviously made a boatload of money. He actually tried uh, making them sell themselves back when he took an activist position. But in any event, he made a fortune and obviously sold way too early because who knew um, you know, that it could re-rate into a new bubble stock. But another thing to note is, speaking of hedge fund managers, I remember over the last you know decade, uh, David Einhorn, you know, uh, one who uh, of Greenlight, who was um, you know a superstar and very well respected, and has had a real tough decade because he shorted the so-called bubble basket, you know, the Netflixes and and things of that nature. And you figure in the current market environment in 2022, he would be absolutely killing it. But I'm not sure. Uh, haven't followed his results too closely, but that was a case of being far too early. And Mike, you brought up our initial discussion a few years ago on Peloton after its IPO, and it's probably roughly flat since then. Uh, so over the long term, you know, my short is my theoretical pretend short, paper short has worked, but in the meantime, I would have been absolutely wrecked as it went up five x 
before dropping 80%. So that's the tricky part of short selling is making sure you have the timing right. Because even if you're right long-term, if it goes up, you know, 3X, 5X on you, you have no choice but to cover and reduce risk or you're going to go broke. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1C ONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. All right, moving on to the next one. This is a pretty quirky story. You had this weirdo couple that was actually multi-billionaires, at least on paper, through criminal activity because they got arrested trying to launder 4.5 billion of Bitcoins. Now, this stash of roughly 120,000 Bitcoins came from the 2016 Bitfinex hack wondering if there's any implications. And so what happened here this week is the U.S. Department of Justice. They busted them, they arrested them, uh, and they were able to actually seize their Bitcoins. That means gain access to the wallets through the private keys. Now, the way that they did this, well, the folks, the husband and wife pair named Ilya Dutch Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan, 34 and 31 years old, respectively, out of New York. This guy kept the private keys to his Bitcoin wallets, holding $4.5 billion, 120,000 Bitcoins, kept them in the cloud. (laughs) And the DOJ was able to break in and seize the Bitcoins, then arrest them. Main point of this story is that these funds, they got them in 2016, and it's unclear whether they're the hackers or somehow ended up with them. I assume they were uh, the ones doing the hacking and stealing of them. But any event, you know, nearly six years later, they still haven't laundered this money because, hey, guess what? Bitcoin is on the blockchain, right? Which is a public ledger, easily traceable and trackable by anyone. So it's public, meaning Bitcoin, the blockchain is actually horrible, awful, no good for laundering money. It's actually the worst. And so whenever someone says, oh, Bitcoin, that's only used to launder money, just you know, know that they're ignorant and don't know what they're talking for because it's actually awful for laundering money. These people had $4.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and they couldn't do it because the blockchain makes it really, really obvious. I found it funny, Mike, that they spent the small fraction that they did get out on gold NFTs and specifically a $500 Walmart gift card. So lessons learned, absolutely in no scenario, do not store your private keys on the cloud. You'll likely get hacked that way. Don't make YouTube videos if your wife is doing it of her rapping and she's bad as Heather Morgan was. Uh, Please get her to stop and whatever you do, don't watch her TikTok videos. I made that mistake. I almost threw up. It was that insufferable. Mike, what are your thoughts on this situation and recent crypto hacks in general? Yeah, I also um, like like most of the Twitterverse. I uh, I watched a bunch of those uh, TikTok videos. They were pretty pretty cringeworthy. Um, <laughs> but the uh, it it brings up a couple of things that are prevalent in a lot of these situations in in with crypto hacks. Number one. Um, back in to go back to 2016, at the time of this hack, was that Bitfinex they contra- controversially decided to socialize the losses. So uh, that that meant that although not all accounts were hacked, all accounts on Bitfinex had a 36% haircut. Um, so that was interesting. So what's what will be interesting to follow here will be how how the DOJ goes about reimbursing. 
um, these these account holders. Um, it, it will be interesting here. But it also, you know, like looking back to to this hack, like there was there was all these transactions that didn't start until January of 2022. And none of that, they it, it didn't look like they were using any mixing strategies or using t- tornado cash, which is our popular ways of concealing your identity for, for moving Bitcoin, right? Right. And so, so you mentioned mixing. And just to clarify for listeners, that's just a way of basically camouflaging your activity on the blockchain. Yeah, basically, it it allows you to to have your Bitcoin go from your wallet to say whether it be Tornado Cash or another app, and then it'll go out into another wallet that uh, that it won't be as trackable. Um, but yeah, so that's all all kind of it. It just really makes leaves you scratching your head. But yeah, as as you mentioned, you know, keeping the private keys on the cloud. Um, is just absolutely insane for even just like a hundred thousand dollars. Never mind a number that's in the billions. Um, and especially if you're conducting fraud, I don't recommend conducting fraud in the first place. But certainly not keeping all of your data in the cloud that can be accessed through a warrant. But yeah, the the gift cards they're buying five hundred dollar gift cards because that's the only liquidity they could get. So it it's the grift really wasn't working and. And also, I mean, this this couple, they were kind of I won't I won't say well known in the the startup community, but Ilya Lichtenstein, he was a part a co-founder of a Y Y Combinator backed startup. Um, so certainly not a good look for Y Combinator. Obviously, it's not like they had any part of this, but just that the association with them isn't great. But yeah, this this has to become a movie, I assume. Like this, this is just an insane story. A very eccentric and odd couple, um, so I have I have no doubt that eventually it'll be a movie. But it, it did bring into something that I I wanted to talk about with other hacks that we've seen lately, specifically one that's been happening on OpenSea. And most hacks really just come down to lack of security and laziness, or if you do have expensive assets, the unwillingness to spend. You know, it's like fifty to a hundred dollars to provide pretty reasonable security solutions. But or, one that we or people not knowing what they're doing. Yes, yeah, a combination of 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 all three of those factors, and the one we've seen a few times lately um, is is involving OpenSea and predominantly Board Ape Yacht Club, um, just because those are high value NFTs. But basically, what's been happening is a holder will put up their ape for sale, and they likely would have done this a number of months ago, and then. After a period of time, they change their mind and, and they want to cancel their offer. Well, ca- canceling costs gas on Ethereum. So it costs you a transaction fee. Um, might be 50 or 100 bucks, which is expensive, but not in the grand scheme of things if you have an asset that's worth a six worth six figures. But so instead of just canceling the offer to sell, they found a way around what they thought was a clever way around this to move the ape to another wallet where after moving it to another wallet, you no longer see it as for sale on OpenSea. So you think that your offer is is canceled. Well, it's not. And that's all fine if you plan to never use that wallet again. But if you ever, for any reason, move that, move that ape back, your offer to sell will be immediately like live again. And so in the, if, if the price hasn't changed, perhaps you'll be fine. But if the price has gone up substantially, which is the case with Board Ape Yacht Club, this offer is way below market. And so an algo trader will immediately scoop it up. And so what was happening was you were seeing these apes being bought for, you know, five ETH, um, even less. And and then immediately the algo trader will will quickly sell it and, and it's gone. Now OpenSea has been compensating these holders because of the bug. However, you know, this could have been avoided by just going through the proper process of canceling your offer. But so they're they're getting a little bit of compensation. But keep in mind that's just monetary compensation. They are not getting those assets back. But it, it's it's really just I guess why we want to highlight some of this is just the amount of attention and learning that needs to be done 
in the in the crypto space if you're going to be a part of that market and to to not look for shortcuts because I think that's where people get into the biggest trouble. Yeah, it's still so early stage that it's it's still like not user friendly at all. Kind of like Bitcoin in 2013. But one last topic we wanted to discuss and and this is DeFi related, Ford Ape Yacht Club related in that there was a liquidation of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. It was called Ape DAO. Now the community behind the Ape DAO, so they're a group of collectors. This DAO held 81 Ford Ape Yacht Club NFTs and 81 Mutant Ape Yacht Club NFTs. They voted to dissolve and liquidate. The reason, because the DAO token traded at a 50% discount to the underlying net asset value of the DAO. And since its launch in October of 2021, so it's only around for a very brief time period, the DAO's token has traded at a consistent discount well below the implied value of its NFT collection or what we refer to its net asset value. I view this as you know probably the first sort of TradFi technique applied to DeFi in that in traditional finance, if you see a company trading well below intrinsic value on the public markets, well, what happens? An activist goes in, buys the stock, agitates for you know some sort of action to reprice the stock closer to intrinsic value, whether that's a sale, liquidation, etc. The same thing can happen in DeFi, and that's the parallel that I wanted to highlight. So what they're going to do, this DAO plans on listing its entire Board Ape Yacht Club, Mutant Ape collection, all the assets for, I think, 12,000 ETH, which is worth about 38 million bucks. So market action, this token doubled on the news, closing most of that valuation gap, that discount to net asset value. So Mike, looks like they're successful in terms of reducing that NAV discount. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they've they reduced the NAV discount. And just before, I mean, from Julian, both your, your yours and my background, this was just right up our alley. We were, as we were reading this, we were extremely excited uh, last week. And it's, it's just, you know, that, that era of everything that has happened in TradFi inevitably will, will, will be ported over to, to DeFi, or I shouldn't say everything, but a lot of aspects. And, and right now, even though that, that, that the Ape token, the token is A-P-E-D, uh, has traded up. There still is an implied by by my calculations here when I was looking at it today, still about a twenty to thirty percent discount based based on it depends if you're looking at the floor method or based on highest trait. But uh, but yeah, there's still a pretty healthy spread there. Um, but you know, they, not only do they hold hold board ape yacht club. Um, but they also have a CryptoPunk, Autoglyphs, four Chromie Squiggles, like a, Damien, a couple Damien Hurst pieces, some Pixel Vault Planet tokens. Like this is a very extensive NFT collection that, you know, it, it, it's a little bit sad to see that, you know, that the, the DAO approach didn't work or that the market mechanism wasn't able to recognize that. But that being said, this is able to be, the, the value is still able to be realized through the liquidation. And so, that that'll be it really interesting to follow. I've been reading on how they've how they're you know expecting to do this, um, the sale of the assets. A lot of it's going through Google Sheets. Um, so it seems like a very a very primitive way of of going about the asset sale. Um, so for anybody that's looking for a very large, for any institutions that are looking for a very large collection of NFTs, I mean, they should really be looking at this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting scenario and what it makes me question, because there are a number of investment DAOs that invest into NFTs and most of them are closed, but some of them do have tokens that are available to the public. It just begs the question, Julian, do you think we'll, we'll start to see more DAO activism, um, as we move forward? Well, certainly if they're trading at a 50% discount to NAV, that we have no problem imagining 
but you mentioned, you know, there's the parallel between TradFi. You did mention the continued discount. You know, certainly it's slim dramatically, but kind of still 10 to 20% because there's still limitations. You can't go on short the underlying portfolio like you can in TradFi and take that spread down to like, you know, pennies as we see in merger arbitrage situations, right? So there's still some market risk, some huge inefficiencies in DeFi, but a cool example of this TradFi to DeFi type shareholder activism. And another fun fact is this ApeDAO, I believe it's the fourth largest holder of board apes. And like you did mention, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to sell these? Well, I know that uh, this collection of 104 CryptoPunks are going up for auction at Sotheby's. That is expected to bring around 20 to $30 million. I wonder if these apes will pursue the same thing, a high-profile auction at one of these name brand auction houses. That's a good point is, is that my the, the vibes I'm getting from, from looking at the the comments from the community is that they don't want to pay the fees that would be um, that would come along with us a, a Sotheby's auction, but you know that might be worth it if you're able because they're also providing some marketing and you know hyping this up. It you know at at the end of the day, if for actual value r- realization, it it could technically be worth it to go with a, a a trusted partner on that but interesting to follow and that about is it for us on state of the markets five so thanks ladies and gents for joining us today hope you enjoyed the show the bursting of the growth stock bubble what's next real fun chatting with you we'll chat with you soon Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.